0: Hi, this is Nathan. My passion is to provide Christ-centered Bible teaching and resources that glorifies God and will encourage and equip you to grow spiritually and live a Christ-centered life. If you would like more resources to help you understand the Word of God and cultivate a passionate love for Jesus that turns the world upside down, please visit deeperchristian.com. Now, Grab your Bible as we dive into this message from God's Word. Looking at the Christian mindset, I actually want to bring you in and kind of do an overview of what we've walked through thus far in Philippians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, Several months ago, I was just personally just kind of wrestling, looking at all the the COVID craziness and and all the stuff that's going on in culture and the upcoming election and all that kind of stuff that was swirling at that time. And I just began to put myself before the Lord saying, God, (laughs) how is a Christian supposed to think in this day and age? What, What does it look like to be a man of God in this day and age? What does it look like to be a believer who stands strong on the word of God and does not waver despite what is going on around him. And so I was just kind of led to, to do a study in Philippians chapter 4. And the whole book of Philippians, if you've read it recently, is all about, it is about joy. That's what most people tell you about. But really the undercurrent of the entire book of Philippians is mindset. Paul is consistently going back to the mindset of a believer. Hey, have this mind in you, Philippians 2.5, that was also in Christ Jesus. Hey, that we, as the body of believers, are to be like-minded, right? Which doesn't mean we like all the same things. So you can like your color of pizza, or color of pizza, you know, you you can have your favorite color, you can have your favorite flavor of pizza, right? You can have your haircut, because I don't want your haircut, and I'm pretty sure you don't want mine either, you know? So, hey, it's not that we have to mimic each other, but there's a symphony going on, right? So one guy's the trombone, another guy's the You know, the tambourine guy, and the other one's a kazoo. But somehow, in the coming together of the instruments, there's one song being played. That's the idea, that there's a mindset. There's one focus, which is Jesus. And then as you get into Philippians chapter 4, Paul is going into the actual mind of a believer. Do you know what the mindset of a Christian is supposed to be at all times of the day, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation? Philippians chapter 4. And so let me just read it to you, and I want to walk through the first several verses with you. And uh, we'll just ponder Jesus together this morning. So this is Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says this, "'Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let everyone come to know your gentleness. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and gratitude, make your requests known to God.'" And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good rapport, if there's anything virtuous, if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things. Do those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you all. What an incredible passage. Uh, Paul begins, and I just want to walk through verses four through seven with you this morning. But Paul begins in verse four by saying, you are to rejoice in the Lord. How you doing? Do you realize that our life is supposed to be one of joy? That there is nothing, 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 like nothing that should cause you not to have joy. Now, I, I know, we're men. So you could say, Nathan, there's a lot of things that cause a lack of joy. I get flat tires. i got to deal with my spouse. I've got kids. I've got work situations. I've got whatever it may be for you, right? But you realize that even in those things, you are called to rejoice, And by the way, just as a thought, you're not to wait for the feeling of joy. You are to decide to have joy, and you are to leap, which is actually what the word in the Greek has this connotation. It's this idea of inner leaping. It's this inner buoyancy of soul. So when the world begins to push you down, uh, Eric's illustration often is the trampoline. The more you put pressure on the trampoline downward, the more it springs you upward. Wouldn't that be great to have that in life? Wouldn't it be great that when the world pushes you down, you spring upward? Hey, when you are falsely accused, you, woo this is exciting, praise the Lord. Well, isn't that miserable? Yes. But I am choosing joy. Hey, work is chaotic, praise the Lord. COVID, ah, woo. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be interesting if everything in your life caused you to leap? Wouldn't it be interesting if everything in your life caused you to rejoice? And it's almost ironic that it's almost like Paul's talking probably to men, and he's just want to make sure that you got it because we can be dense at times. Maybe not you, I can be dense at times. And so, as if I needed to hear it again, he repeats it and he says, Again, I will tell you, rejoice. Now, you could say, Well, Paul, that's probably easy for you to say. Do you know where Paul's writing this? In a prison cell. I mean, here he is. He's in chains. He's in the bottom of a prison cell. He's 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 been tortured. He's been abused. He's been. And if, hey, if you read the Corinthians passage where Paul begins to walk through what he looks like, that's not how we usually think of it. But hey, if you were beaten, you know, with the forty lashes minus one five times, right? And in the Roman world, the reason you got forty minus one, you know, the passion of the Christ thing. You know, where they, they put you on the log, and they tie you up, they strip your back, and then they take this cat of nine tails, and at the end of, the, the end of these leather bands, they have rock and glass and bone and, and whatever they could find that will tear skin, and, right, and they throw that thing at your back, and they yank skin. Paul had that done five times, 39 lashes. And the reason it was 39 and not 40 is the Romans thought that if they did 40, it would kill you. So they're going to bring you right up to the point of death, and then stop. And Paul had that done five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was shipwrecked a night and day in the deep. I mean, he's describing what he looks like. He doesn't look that great, folks. He probably did not have a back. Because what was on his back would have been ripped out years ago. His whole back would have been scarred over, and then that would have been ripped out, and then it would have been scarred over, and then that would have been ripped out. And And here he is with all that muck and the mire now sitting in the bottom of a prison cell and he's looking at you and saying, rejoice. Now, I am fairly sure, I know some of you have had a hard life, but I am fairly sure none of you has had that. And if so, whip off your shirt. Don't, don't actually do that, please. We don't want to see it. <laughs> but could you imagine? I don't think any of us have gone to such a horrible place that Paul has gone And if Paul can say, rejoice, surely we can rejoice. So rejoicing is not based on circumstance. It's not based on situation. It's not based on what's going on around you. It's an inner reality. There's this old illustration. I love the illustration. You squeeze a tube of toothpaste. What comes out? Toothpaste. Why? Not because it was squeezed. It's because that's what was in the tube. Make sense? If you want a different illustration, there's this old illustration of this professor who went down to the classroom and had a glass of water in his hand. And he grabbed a student and he says, put your hands on my arm. And he says, now I want you to move your arms back and forth. So the arms were moving back and forth and water was flying everywhere. And the professor looked at the class and said, class, why did water fly out of the cup? And someone says, well, it's because he was shaking your arm. He says, no, 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 listen to the question. Why did water fly out of the cup? And they says, oh, it's because water was in the cup. Right. You realized you will be shaken. You will be squeezed. So the question is not, well, am I going to be squeezed or am I not going to be squeezed? The, question is gonna, the, the, the real question is, when you are squeezed, what's going to come out of you? Wouldn't it be neat if when you're squeezed in life, joy came out of you? Wouldn't it just be neat when when life put pressure upon you that the only thing that came out of you was Jesus? By the way, do you know what we call people who live like this? Yeah, we call them Christians. Don't you want to be one? So Paul says, hey, rejoice. This is not a recommendation. This is a command. Hey, you are called... As a man of God in this generation, to rejoice all the time, which includes right now, so tell your faces. (laughs) Because some of you didn't get it. You are called to rejoice at every moment of every single day. How would that change your family? How would that change your marriage? How, How would that change your church? How would that change your community? I mean, could you imagine in this day and age someone walking around with the fullness of joy? And by the way, do you know where the fullness of joy comes? Psalm 6, 16 verse 11 reminds us that the fullness of joy is in God himself. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want joy? You need Jesus. And what would it look like if you lived that way in this world? I, I, we've been talking as a staffer since the COVID thing started, that you know, up until this point, American society has been pampered and it's been coddled and it's been full of comfort, and, and all of that has been stripped away over the last several months. And this is perhaps the first time, at least in our generation, that you can't hide behind all the little comforty stuff, that the reality of your life is being exposed. So when Peter, in in 1 Peter, tells us, always have a response for the hope that lies within you. It's interesting, people actually, maybe for the first time in our lifetimes, get to see the hope. If you're living it. Because up up until this point, we've been able to hide it. There's all these people who are like, I'm fine, I'm good. But now, there no longer has any stability now they have no foundation now now everything's sand so you get to be a demonstration of the life of jesus in this culture and what would it look like if you rejoiced always if someone looked at you and said i how is it in the middle of all this crazy election stuff how is it in the middle of all this COVID stuff how is it in the middle of this uncertainty that you can just you can have joy Now, Paul goes on in verse 5 and says, let everyone come to know your gentleness. Now, gentleness is probably not what you're thinking of. Gentleness is not like, oh, he's so nice. That's not this word. There is another Greek word that that means gentleness, that has this idea of nice, has the idea of being meek. This word, though, this is like a kind of a word. Uh, This word for gentleness, let me just read this to you. It is a willingness to demonstrate love rather than argue and prove yourself right. So rather than demand your own rights, you choose love. Rather than force justice, you give mercy. Uh, You are willing to overlook an offense in order to show someone else mercy and love. You're willing to go beyond expectations when justice is even required. In short, this idea of gentleness really is the idea of you are to respond like Jesus in every situation. Well, but I need to demand my rights. No, you don't. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give you what you deserve? What does he give you? Mercy. He's patient with us, folks. That's great news. And that's to come out of our lives. And wouldn't it be interesting, rather than demand, rather than force, rather than be offended, rather than prove our own rights, rather than, wouldn't it be interesting if we just demonstrated love and mercy, and kindness? That's the idea of gentleness. So Paul says, hey, rejoice always, in case you forgot this. Rejoice! And let me tell you what, verse 5. Let everyone come to know your mercy, your love, your, your gentleness. Now, why is that to happen? He tells us, the Lord is at hand. And there's two ideas with this. One, there's this idea that he is coming soon. You do realize he is coming soon. We are one day closer. Please contain your excitement. Hey, we are one day closer to the reality of the second coming of Christ. And by the way, that is the anchor of our hope, folks, I don't know the last time you heard a second coming message. It's been a while for me. But you realize Hebrew tells us that there's an anchor to our soul. there's There's a hope that we have. What is it? He's returning, folks. Isn't it interesting that Paul comes into this little town called Thessalonica, spends two weeks, establishes a church, and leaves. Now let me ask you. If you go into a community for two weeks and all you had to do, I mean, all you had was two weeks to teach them, the basics of discipleship, what would you teach them? I mean, I have a list. But Paul, in the book of Thessalonians, writes them and says, hey, I am writing, you, writing to you to remind you what I told you. So he spent two weeks with them, established a church, and left. And now he's writing to remind them what he told them. Do you know what he told them? Do you want know the book of 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, what the big focus is? The second coming. Isn't that an interesting thought? That here is Paul he establishes a church and he says, Hey, this is really important for your discipleship. Hey, you're a new believer. This is really important. Jesus is coming again. Amen. And yet we kind of live as, as if, Yeah, eventually. But that is to be a bedrock to our souls. You realize that in the middle of craziness, in the middle of whatever it is that you may be going on, that there is a hope. There is, a, there is a anchor to your life. What is it? He's returning. Hey, the day is drawing near, folks. Hey, we're in the middle of birth pangs. Hey, this thing's coming soon. And that should get you excited. So there's one idea that the Lord is near, meaning that the day is coming. I mean, it's soon. But the other idea in the passage is that he is pressing in upon us. Hey, you do not have to live on your own. That Jesus wants to be smack dab in the middle of your situations. That he wants to be smack dab in the middle of your life. That he wants to be smack dab in the middle of your circumstances and your marriages and your families and your churches. and Hey, and that should bring hope and that should bring rest and that should bring peace to your life. Why? Because Jesus is smack dab in the You don't have to face life on your own. That you have Jesus. That you have the King of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, who now lives inside of you through the indwelling of his spirit. Please stay seated. I know that's exciting. So are you getting this? Paul is telling you, hey, let me tell you about the life of a believer. Let me tell you what the mindset of a believer is. You rejoice always. That there's this constant responding like Jesus. That you are willing to show mercy and love even though justice may require something else. And that there's this constant reminder that the Lord is here. The Lord is here. He is near us. He's smack dab in the middle of this place, but he's also coming soon. Now, Paul goes on in verse 6, and you need to see this. Verse 6 is just a powerful passage. And it just, it bothers me. (laughs) If I can be honest with you. I don't like verse 6. But this is what verse 6 says. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, be anxious for nothing. Do you know what nothing means in Greek? Nothing. There is absolutely nothing in your life that should be producing anxiety. How are you doing? Seriously, how are you doing? Hey, there's nothing in your life that produces fear. There's nothing in your life that produces worry. Nothing in your life produces forbearing. Uh, Paul, are you on this planet? Everything in this world produces fear, everything produces worry, everything produces anxiety. Paul says, not for the Christian. It's interesting that word for anxiety here is this inner turmoil, inner care, it's a concern, it's a, it's a disquietness within the soul. In fact, the root word of the word anxiety means to be divided, it means to be split apart. Haven't you lived there? Where there is this split in your soul, that there's this division within the inner parts of who you are, and there's just this. Paul said that should never go on in your life. Now that bothers me. Because he obviously did not have to deal with COVID. Now he had the plague, but surely that was not nearly as bad. And he obviously didn't have to deal with the 2020 political election cycle. Or that group. You can pick, your, pick what group you want to choose. And yet he's telling us that there is nothing in our life that produces fear and anxiety and worry and trepidation and foreboding. Paul says you're correct. Nothing, nothing does that in you. Well, how on earth is that going to take place? The Lord is near. Hey, if the Lord is near, there's no reason to worry. It's the uh, uh, Hebrews 13 passage. Right? In Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, it says, For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What could man do to me? By the way, in the Greek, I don't mean to keep going back to the Greek, but in the Greek, that I will never leave you or forsake you, if you actually look at it, there is actually seven negations to this thing in the passage. What Paul's, ax- or sorry, Paul, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that I will never, 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 never leave Or forsake you. And anytime there's a repetition, it's there for emphasis. So you have a seven repetition thing. I mean, this thing is so overemphasized as if to say, I know you're not going to get it the first time. So I'm not just merely saying I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm telling you, I will never do it. I will never do it. I will never, 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 never do it. Isn't that amazing? The Lord is near, folks. And if he will never, 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 never leave or forsake us, why would we fear? Why would we worry? I mean, what on earth could this world do to us when the Lord is near? Isn't that exciting? Please tell your faces. I mean, that's phenomenal, folks. That there actually is no reason to live in fear. There is no reason to have foreboding and trepidation. and There is no reason to have that split thing within you where you're all divided on the inside. Wouldn't it be interesting if nothing in your life caused anxiety, fear, foreboding, everything caused rejoicing? Uh, Richard Rembrandt is known for having said that there are 366 commands in Scripture that says "Fear not." That's one for every single day of the year, including leap year. And the reason he said that's actually a good thing is if you know Richard Rembrandt's story, he was in Romania during World War II and over uh, under communist. Romania, he, because he stood up as a Christian, as a pastor, he ended up being taken off and thrown into prison for over a decade. And do you know what day he was taken? He was arrested. He was a leap year. And as he sat in the back of the police vehicle, he had supposedly all 366 fear knots memorized. And as he sat in the back of the police vehicle, he says, Lord, there's even one for today. And I thank you that there is one for today. And there's been some conjecture of whether that's actually true. I went to see if there actually is 366, and I couldn't find them. I couldn't find all those. But I did look up how many times fear is mentioned in Scripture, and did you know, this cracks me up, did you know that the number one command most given in Scripture is do not fear? And I found 746 verses or instances in Scripture that talk about fear, foreboding, don't have it. You think this is something that we have to deal with? And yet, Paul reminds us nothing should be producing anxiety. Let me give you a few other the verses really quick Psalm 34:4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. It's a great passage. 2 Corinthians 4, 8-9, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We may be persecuted, but we are not forsaken. Hey, we may be struck down, but we are not destroyed. Why? We have the Lord. 2 Timothy 1, 7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of self-control. Folks, you have all things that you need for life and for godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3. And as such, you have all things that you need not to live in fear. Foreboding, worry, anxiety. And Paul says, hey, you are to rejoice always. And by the way, you realize that if you are rejoicing always, it's really hard to live in fear. If you are rejoicing always, it is really hard to live in worry. Because when you look at your bank account, I don't know what you do when you look at your bank account, but when I look at my bank account and I'm like, ah! Sorry, I scream like a girl. And I go, oh no! What are we going to do? If I turn that into rejoicing and opportunity of thanksgiving, you realize it's really hard to worry about it. Wow, Lord, I trust you. Oh, this is phenomenal. There's nothing in there. And hey, that is great news. C.T. Studd is known of having said, as C.T. Studd was a great missionary that we really appreciate around here. And uh, he, he was often quoted by saying, funds are low again, hallelujah. Because obviously the Lord is leaving his reputation in our hands. In other words, if the Lord has called us to something, he will supply it. He's not going to tarnish his reputation by not supplying what we need. He will give us all things that we need. So we can trust Him. So hey, funds are low again. Woo, what a Jesus. This is awesome. I don't know how He's going to provide, but I'm expected. So Paul says in verse 6, nothing in your life produces anxiety. Rather, everything in your life produces prayer. Look at verse 6 again. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So nothing in your life is producing fear. Nothing in your life is producing anxiety. Rather, everything in your life produces prayer. Now, it's interesting to me that he uses three different words that mean the exact same thing. Prayer. Prayer, supplication, make requests. Those are the same things to you, aren't they? And yet when you look at it and again there are three different words but it's like the word prayer it's like this big umbrella picture of prayer it's it's like the posture of prayer it's the it's the tone of prayer it's the big idea of prayer supplication then is the the thing that you do in the middle of prayer so here I am in prayer what I do I make supplications I'm bringing requests I'm bringing my needs and making them known but then how am I doing that well I'm giving requests and that whole thing is wrapped up in thanksgiving. Does that make any sense to you? Now, it's interesting, Paul swaps those words around all the time, but it seems like what Paul is saying is hey, however you pray, whenever you pray, whatever that looks like, nothing causes anxiety, everything produces prayer. Do you know what prayer is all about? It's not about demanding things, it's not even about God, I need, here's my list. Prayer is actually about relationship. Prayer is about intimacy. Prayer is about recognizing that the king of the universe you have access to. And as such, can we not come before him and say, Lord, Father, Daddy, which is actually the word that we get to call him, Abba, Father, which is actually Daddy. Isn't that a cool thought? It's not, oh, verily, Lord, you don't have to do that. You can actually walk up with boldness to the throne room of grace and be like, hey, dad, got a question for you. Isn't that cool? Hey, if you try to get into the White House, which you probably don't even want to do at this point, but if you try to get into the White House to talk to the president in the Oval Office, you realize you will be shot. I'm fairly confident. (laughs) But you guys remember that old scene? Was it JFK with the little kid? Or the little. you You remember the scene where the president was in the Oval Office having these big, big meetings back, I think, in the 50s, and the little son was under the president's desk playing with the truck? I think it was JFK. Isn't it interesting that a little kid who's a son can just pop into the Oval Office and just crawl up on his dad's lap? even though he's dealing with some massive world issues. We have access to the king of the universe. And, and you don't have to like, <clears throat> can I schedule an appointment? You can actually enter the throne room boldly because you're an adopted son. Amen. And you can walk in and just be like, hey, dad, I, I just want to hang out with you. Dad, can I just, can we just hang? I just want Relationship. And when we make requests known to him, it's not like, oh, verily. It's not that kind of stuff. It's, Lord, you, you want relationship and intimacy. And I know you're living right here inside of me through your spirit, but I just, I want to spend time with you. And So think about this. What if everything in your life, rather than producing anxiety, what if everything in your life pushed you into relationship? It's not that the circumstances have changed, but what used to produce fear and that which used to produce anxiety and, and that which, which to produce worry and foreboding and forbearing. And see, the, the circumstance may not have shifted, but what if rather than producing this, it drove you into intimacy with Jesus? And now your whole life is wrapped up in prayer, in relationship, in intimacy with thanksgiving. And I know we're almost to that holiday, but Thanksgiving, biblically, is not a meal. I mean, praise the Lord that there is a meal called Thanksgiving. But biblically, it's not a meal. It's a lifestyle thing. In fact, Ephesians 5 tells us that the conversation of heaven, if you you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, it's contrasted with the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of the world is the talk or the language of the world is full of foolishness, perverseness, depravity. That's the world language. Just turn on the news. But the kingdom of God, Ephesians 5, verse 3, I think it is, Ephesians 5 says that the language of heaven, the language of the kingdom of God, is thanksgiving. That we live in the reality that, hey, the Lord has saved me. And if we actually realize what God has saved us from, We couldn't keep you from thanksgiving. We could not keep you from rejoicing. If we actually realized that one sin was enough to send us to hell for eternity. And by the way, I am quite convinced you have done far more than one. And if you're like, no, then that was a lie, which means... Do you realize that while you were yet a sinner, while you were shaking your fists in rebellion to God, Christ died for you? And because of the cross of Christ, he has redeemed you. Please, contain your excitement and stay seated. But Christ has redeemed you, folks. Which means you have been set free and the punishment of hell for eternity is not yours now. You're not gonna have a relationship with God for eternity. In heaven. Isn't that a phenomenal thought? Which means what? There should be an ever reality of thanksgiving bubbling forth from your life. There should always be joy in your mouth. Which is why, when we're gathered together, there should always be a song, a hymn, and a spiritual song. Why? Because we just can't help it. If we actually understood the reality of what he's done in us. And Paul in Ephesians again says, hey, the conversation in the world, pst, throw that off. What is the conversation in the kingdom of God? Rejoicing. What's the conversation in the kingdom of God? Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is not a holiday. It's a lifestyle for the believer. So, ponder this. What if everything in your life, rather than producing fear, anxiety, foreboding, forbearing, what if instead it drove you into relationship with Jesus? What if it drove you into thanksgiving? What if it would drive you into rejoicing? Now, you still got to deal with the situation. I mean, you get a flat tire, you still got to deal with a flat tire. But what if the flat tire isn't just merely a flat tire? What if it was an opportunity to get tight with Jesus? Hey, what if the temptation that always shows up in your life would just drive you to Jesus? Hey, what if, what if the election would drive you to Jesus? What if whatever happens with all this COVID craziness, what if it would just drive you to Jesus? What if your spouse would just drive you to Jesus? And some of you have kids. I've met some of your kids they're driving me to Jesus. <laughs> and I keep using this illustration, but if here is God and here is you, you realize the moment that circumstance, the moment that temptation, the moment anything gets between me and Jesus, it will put pressure upon us, which means it's going to drive us apart. But what if you got so tight with Jesus that the only place that temptation circumstance could show up was over here. And when it began to put pressure on you, all it did was drive you closer to Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying, come to Jesus, oh, everything becomes great. You can skip through the meadows, perfect 70 degree weather, skittles fall from the sky. He doesn't say that kind of stuff. In fact, you are promised persecution. Congratulations. Hey, you are promised suffering. Suffering. Get used to it. Hey, you are promised trials. You think COVID's tough. Just wait. Seriously. Why? Because you are promised hardship. None of you are excited. But rejoice always. I mean, this is good stuff, folks. But what if you got so tight with Jesus that the circumstances and the trials and the temptations of life could not get between you and Jesus? You realize all it would do then was make you even tighter with Jesus. You don't have to fear temptation. You don't. You could actually rejoice in the middle of temptation. Temptation shows up. Wow, Lord, this is a phenomenal opportunity. I've always given in to that temptation. But rather than giving into it, I'm gonna to turn to you and I'm gonna embrace you and I'm gonna hold tight to you because you are my sole means of salvation. You are my victory. And Lord, I don't even have to ask you for the victory. You've already given me the victory, which means I can begin to thank you and praise you that I've already triumphed over this temptation because I am in you. Try to give in a temptation then when you live with thanksgiving and rejoicing in the midst of your temptation. Do you know how hard it is to give in a temptation when you're thanking God for the victory that he's already purchased for that temptation? Hey, you want a secret to triumphant living? Get tight with Jesus. See, what if the circumstances of life would not draw your focus away from Jesus? What if the circumstances of life would drive you into a more intense focus of Jesus? that that something happens over here, Lord, I am focusing more intently upon you because I realize that the moment I focus on this, I'm going to follow in in despair and worry and fear. But Lord, I am choosing to rejoice and be thankful that I have you in the middle of this situation. So Lord, I don't know how you're gonna come through on this thing, but Lord, I am trusting you because you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you are my hope and my peace and my joy. So Lord, I invite you in the middle of this circumstance because I can't do this on my own. See, what if everything would just push you to Jesus? You miss your flight tomorrow. Woo! Thank you Jesus. I got a few extra hours at the airport to spend time with you. You get sick. Woo! Jesus, this is a phenomenal opportunity. You lose your job. Lord, I- And you've got to get my wife there, too. Because she needs to trust you, too. So that's going to drive me to you, too. And I have that one kid. Lord, I'm not letting you go on that one. See, what if everything in your life would drive you to Jesus? Wouldn't it be interesting if nothing could cause fear in your life? Nothing would produce anxiety. And I know we're men. I understand that. Which means there's responsibilities, there's pressure upon our shoulders. Hey, we've got a caretaker. Hey, we've got people to care for. We've got. But what if instead of producing the fear and the anxiety and the pressure that you've always carried upon your own shoulder, what if all of that would drive you to the reality of relationship with Jesus? What if this would cause you to pray? What what if this would cause you to rejoice? What if this would cause you to live in a state of thanksgiving? By the way, do you know what we call people who live like this? Yeah, I think we call them Christians, don't we? And don't you want to be one? Do you know what it would tell our culture to have a whole group of men living this out? <laughs> Could you imagine? I mean, do you know why the early church turned the world upside down? It's because they lived this. They didn't esteem it. They didn't merely talk about it. They lived it. So let me ask you, what's causing fear in your life? What are the points of anxiety in your soul? What are the things that are causing that division within you? It's not that they go away, but would you allow those things instead of producing the division and the fear, would you let them drive you to Jesus? It's interesting that the word for prayer in verse six, that first word for prayer, can also be translated a place of prayer. Uh, You know the story, Jesus comes in the temple, tosses over all the money changers' uh, tables and all that kind of stuff, and he looks at the Pharisees and he says, hey, my house, this place, shall be a place, that's the word, the place of prayer For all the nations. Wouldn't it be interesting if your life was a place of prayer for all the nations? That when something happened, it just drove you into this, again, this place of prayer and petition and thanksgiving. And you actually became the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which is supposed to be a house of prayer. For all the nations. I mean, could you imagine... Someone cuts you off in traffic. And instead of honking your horn and showing them the one way sign, you become a place of prayer for that person. Hey, you're being squeezed. What's going to come out of you? Frustration, anger, fear, foreboding? Wouldn't it be interesting if life squeezes you and out came rejoicing, out came prayer, out came thanksgiving? Wow, Lord, that person must be having a hard day today. And they look frustrated. Lord, will you encourage them? Will you put people in their midst that just show forth the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus? Would you bend their hearts so they come to know you? And will you help their driving? I mean, you would drive with peace, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if, if something happened down at your job and instead of, ah, it just, oh, Lord, would you just, hey, would you move in this situation and would you move upon that person and would you just, see, what if the marriage stuff and what if the kids stuff would just, oh, Lord, I just, and you became a place of prayer for the world around you. Do you want me to call those people Christians. Now take all of that and come into verse 7. So so get the trajectory. Get the flow here. Paul says, verse 4, rejoice. And in case you missed it, rejoice. Are you getting this? Rejoice. That everything in your life is producing joy. He says, hey, let your reasonableness or let your gentleness be known. Hey, are you willing to respond like Jesus? Are you willing to show mercy and love and kindness rather than demand justice in your rights and your whatever? Hey, the Lord is at hand, which means there's no reason for anxiety. There's no reason for fear or foreboding because he has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. So can I rest in his provision? Can I rest in his purpose? Can I rest in his plan? And that doesn't mean the things go away. I still got to handle the flat tires. So we're not saying come to Jesus, everything comes easy. It's come to Jesus, things get hard. (laughs) If you want the truth. But in the midst of the difficulty, you have Jesus. And what if everything, instead of producing fear, would drive you into relationship and intimacy and you actually became a place of prayer for the world around you? And then Paul says in verse 7, when that happens, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I don't know about what you think of when you hear the word peace. Uh, on a day like this, I think of like Florida, beach, book in hand, glass of sweet tea, you know. So, I mean, just, oh, peace. Doesn't that sound relaxing? <laughs> it just sounds awesome. But that's not peace. Peace, biblically, is this idea of harmony. It uh, has this idea of completeness or wholeness. It has this idea of a removing of the enemy faction. It has this idea of security and soundness. But do you know actually what our peace is? Peace is not something that God gives. Peace is who he is. Did you get that? Peace is not something that God gives. It's who he is. He is peace, Ephesians 2.14. He is our peace. Jesus is our security, folks. Jesus is our soundness. He is our harmony. He is our completeness. He is our wholeness. He is the removal of all enemy faction because he is our strong tower. He is our rock of refuge. And we find our hope and security in him. So if nothing is producing fear and anxiety, everything is pressing me toward him, do you not realize that when I embrace him and I get wrapped up in him, I begin to experience who he is, which is peace? Don't you want peace in your life? Don't you want peace in the inner parts of your soul? With all that division and all that chaos and all the pressure that you're feeling and all that division and all that, don't you just want a reprieve? Don't you just want to go, oh, I, I'm I'm at rest. And what's interesting about the biblical idea of rest, it actually has nothing to do with circumstance. This is not, well, when God cleans up my life and when there's no longer any problems and and my wife starts treating me the way she's supposed to and when my kids become finally perfect, I'll be at peace. Good luck. The biblical idea, though, is, Lord, I get to have peace because I have you. Even if my wife doesn't treat me right. Right? And even if my kids keep doing that one thing that just drives me up a wall. And even if my coworkers are doing their crazy thing. And even if society, and even if the election, and even if COVID, and even if I can actually have peace. Because peace is an inner disposition. And wouldn't it be amazing if you as a man of God could be an island of peace amidst the sea of turmoil of the culture today? That someone would look at you and they just go, I just actually get more restful when I'm around you. There's, there's a calming, calming effect that when I'm around you, I just go, Oh, what is it? Jesus. And wouldn't it be neat amidst all the, the, the waves and the chaos and the turmoil that is swir- swirling on around us, and it is swirling. And darkness is invading the land, folks. But wouldn't it be great in the middle of that you can be a beacon, a lighthouse, a little island of tranquility that God begins to use to grow and to change people's lives and and this island begins to expand because more and more people want to be there? Does that make any sense? See, you are called to be a man of peace. I'm not talking about being passive aggressive, that's not peace. I'm not talking about a lack of war. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having the presence of Jesus in all circumstances. That you have a soundness, a completeness, a rest. There's a even if everything around you is chaotic. Do you know what the Christian mindset is? It's not based on circumstance, it's not based on situation, it's not based on an election. It's not based on whether COVID comes or goes or stays and grows or was a farce all along. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. That you are called to be a Christian regardless of what you're going through. And I don't know what your financial struggles are, and I don't know what your family situation is, and I don't know what your work looks like. And I don't I don't I don't understand your life. I don't. But I know what it's supposed to look like. Would you be willing to be a Christian? in this generation, in this hour, for this day and age. Because as things get darker and darker and things get crazier and crazier, we need Christians to actually live as Christians. What would it look like for God to actually renew your mind? As Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, that no longer your life is no longer a place for fear. That there is no longer room for foreboding or anxiety. Wouldn't it be great if the only room you had in your life was for joy? Because the fullness of joy is Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if your whole life was wrapped up in thanksgiving because you realize that the fullness of thanksgiving is the redemption that he purchased upon your life, purchased for your life, and therefore there's no reason for you not to be thanks, full of thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be great if your life was just one of peace? Because Jesus is your peace. And in the midst of the day and age that we live, you would stand strong as a man of God, a man of joy, a man of gentleness, a man of prayer, a man of thanksgiving, a man of peace. Boy, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Oh, that's right. You're supposed to look like him. Would you get tight with Jesus? You're not going to make it outside of him. You want to know what it means to be a man? You need Jesus. You want hope? You need Jesus. You need peace? You need Jesus. You need some joy? You need Jesus. Do you have it? And would you allow whatever the circumstances that are going on in your life, would you just allow those things to press you to him? I mean, could you get so tight with Jesus that nothing could get between you and him? I mean, could you imagine every circumstance of your life, every situation, every problem, every financial difficulty, every family crisis, every work issue, everything in your life would just cause you to grow in relationship with Jesus? And wouldn't it be so neat if, As you get wrapped up in Jesus, you just couldn't contain him. That he just began to ooze out of every pore of your body. That he just began to flow out of you. And people just started going, wow, you must be a Christian. Ah, How'd you know? Because you're not normal. The whole world is falling apart and you have joy. You're like bouncing around, just full of hope and thanksgiving and Don't esteem it. Live it. And if you're like, I don't know how, embrace Jesus. And you won't be able to help yourself. Let's pray, Lord. Uh, Lord, we want to be Christians. Lord, we don't want to esteem Christianity. Lord, we don't want to esteem a Christian mindset. Lord, we don't even want to esteem godly manhood. Lord, we want to live it. We want to experience it. We want this to be the tenor of our lives. Lord, what would it look like if everything was producing joy within us? But, hey, when we got in the car wreck, it's like, Lord, this is horrible. <laughs> but Lord, I trust you, so I'm going to choose to rejoice. And we're not talking about a feeling. We're not even talking about a happiness. We're talking about the undercurrent of our souls. Lord, we need that as men. Lord, what would it look like if, if everyone came to knew our gentleness, that the way that we responded in every situation looked just like you? Lord, what would it look like if we lived as if, in fact, you are at hand, that you are coming soon and that your presence has enveloped us, that you are near to us? In fact, you live inside of us through your Spirit Lord, what if nothing in our life would produce anxiety or fear or worry? What if everything in our life would cause us to be pressed, would press us unto you and we would live in the reality of Jesus Christ that we would become places of prayer, that we would be houses of prayer for the nations? And regardless of what I was going through, somehow your life and the intimacy that I had with you would just bubble forth and we just, ooze out upon the people around me lord what would it look like for a peace genuine peace to guard my heart and my mind that your peace became the the soldiers around my heart and my mind that the inner life of who i am the most vulnerable part of my very being would be guarded by you your peace Lord, I feel like that would change everything in me. Lord, that would change our marriages. That would change our families. That would change how we communicate. This would change how we live down on our jobs. Lord, this would change our churches. This would change our communities. Lord, this would change our country. Lord, I'm convinced this would change our world. If we lived it. Lord, would you press us to the reality of embracing you afresh? This isn't a, well, I embraced Jesus 50 years ago, and I'm good. I bumped my head once at the altar. This is, have I embraced you today? In this moment, have I embraced you? Or what would it look like moment by moment by moment by moment, day by day by day, to drive, to, to press, to focus, to just embrace you, to... To not let go, to let everything be pressing me to you, that the good things oppress me to you, the bad things oppress me to you, the ugly things oppress me to you. Lord, what would it look like if everything in my life would drive me to you? Oh, Lord, I don't know about anybody else in this room, but Lord, I desperately need peace, which is you. You are our peace. So, Lord, would you come and would you? Take your peace, which surpasses all understanding, and would you guard, protect our hearts and our minds? Lord, we desperately need it. Let us be men for this hour. Men in this dark day. Lord, what a great time to be alive. The world does not need men when things are easy. The world needs heroes when things grow tough, when things grow dark. And Lord, you have brought us into our strength in this hour to be men for such a time as this. Lord, don't let us, don't don't allow this season to pass us by finding ourselves sitting on the couch being passive. Lord, let us rise up and live the fullness of the Christian life which we fully recognize we cannot do outside of you. So Lord, we humbly come and surrender ourselves afresh and say, have at it. Take our lives, let it be. wholly consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take our minds, take our wills, take our passions, take our talents, take our physical strength, take our mental abilities, take our families, take our marriages, take our churches. And Jesus, would you turn this world on its head? Lord, this, this world desperately, desperately needs revival. But would you start with us? Would you cause us to come to a place of repentance? Would you take your Spirit and blow upon the embers of our souls? And would you call us to rise up and be men for this hour? And then, Lord, would you take these humble vessels out into the world and turn the world upside down? Lord, we do want to be men of grit. Which means we need you, Jesus. We love you. We give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name. Amen.